Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about why your brain makes you extra antisocial when you're sick and how one researcher created a pain scale from insect stings. You'll also hear the fourth and final edition of our Fruit Fly Friday miniseries, where you'll learn about the role of fruit flies in our ecosystem with some help from Stephanie Moore, author of the book, First in Fly. Let's satisfy some curiosity. According to research, your brain makes you extra antisocial when you're sick. So don't blame yourself if you've got the sniffles and you suddenly feel like blowing off that thing you were supposed to do with your friend. Because after all, your immune system is connected to your brain. And that means that it may, in fact, influence your social behavior. The science here starts with your vagus nerve. That's a network of fibers that connects parts of your body, like your gut and lymph nodes. The vagus nerve can detect cytokines, which are compounds your immune system shoots out when you're fighting an illness. Your brain gets word of the illness through the nerve, and before you know it, you're glued to the couch. Researchers speculate there are two main reasons your brain tries to ground you. First, it's an evolutionary adaptation to keep you and the people around you healthy. If you stay inside when you're sick, you're a lot less likely to spread around the sickness to other people, right? Spreading sickness, not exactly beneficial for the survival of our species. And the second reason is that holding up at home gives your body the time to fight the infection and bounce back. Before you go blaming your immune system on your antisocialness, though, keep in mind that it can work in the total opposite way, too. If your health is firing on all cylinders, your brain may nudge you toward being extra extroverted. In a 2010 study, participants were given a flu shot, and in the 48 hours following the flu shot, participants interacted with significantly more people and in significantly larger groups. Sounds to me like if I want to start having more parties, I should step up my workout routine. And of course, get vaccinated, but that goes without saying. For our last entry in the Fruit Fly Friday miniseries, we're going to tie everything together by zooming out and covering a few fruit fly basics. As in, what do fruit flies do out in the wild? How safe are they from humans? And most importantly, how do you get rid of fruit flies in your house? Stephanie Moore is a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of the book, First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. And here she is with the details, starting with... What do fruit flies actually eat? And what purpose do they serve in the ecosystem? Well, they really are all about the fruit and what's living on the fruit. So they eat the sugars in the fruit and they eat the yeast that are um, fermenting that are on the fruit as well. Okay. And that's where they come from. That's why they're annoying because they drink all my wine. <laughs> well, they also, don't they help with wine though share. too? Don't they, don't they help with wine? I, I know I read a part of your book where you said that there's a certain kind of fruit fly that actually spreads grape yeast from grape to grape so that we can get better wine, right? Yeah. So one of the fun things I uncovered while doing research for the book was a real old quote that was suggesting that we, we owe a debt to the flies because they they move the yeast around um, in the vineyard. So I haven't seen any contemporary studies on that, but it's it's easy to imagine that they're they're carrying those those yeasts around as they fly around. Yeah, so they only deserve a little sip of it, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they're not going to want more than that. They're they're tiny. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We earned it. Are there any worries or concerns about like pesticides affecting the 
fruit fly population, like like how we're kind of losing the bees or anything like that. Are we at risk of fruit flies going away or, or, or are we pretty safe there? I think most of us would probably think, yeah, no, there's no real high risk. <laughs> I, I see plenty, uh, plenty in my compost bin. Um, but <laughs> yeah, certainly there's there's general concern about what it is that we're doing on the planet in, in a kind of a, a surge recently that I've noticed of interest in what's happening specifically with insects. I don't think they're going away fast, but I will say things like when DDT, the pesticide, was commonly used, it's now no longer used, at least in the U.S., a lot of insects developed resistance to that, and that that's commonly true. So the fruit flies that we use in the lab are, are, are polite enough to wait until after fruit is ripe to show up on the scene. So they're not considered an agricultural pest. But nonetheless, they're in the same environments that we're being treated with pesticides. So you can actually detect populations even now of Drosophila melanogaster in the wild that have resistance to that pesticide or other pesticides. So that gives us a learning opportunity for one thing about you know, what does it mean to select for the organisms that have that resistance? But it also suggests that they are subject to the kinds of things that we're doing to the environment just along along with, you know, many, many other species. What do people say to you when you tell them that you study fruit flies? Do people, uh, like, how do they react? Well, I say the most common question is then how do I get rid of them in my kitchen? So I've gotten quite good at teaching. It's very, we use traps in the lab. They escape in the lab. And so we have traps. Um, you put a little bit of bait in a jar and then curl up a piece of paper. So there's a tiny hole at the end of that cone. Stick that in your bait. You know, you can, they'll, they smell very well. They'll, they'll find their way into the bait and then they can't find their way back out. So we use those in the lab. I've taught a lot of people how to, how to make those. And, you know, and then the other question is, the kind of why question. And essentially, that's the, the motivation for me to write the book to answer the why we've talked about some of the whys here, we want to understand biology, we want to use a simple, inexpensive system with which to do that. And we're hoping uh, that that biology then translates to information we can use to understand and treat diseases. And that's proving true. Again, Stephanie Moore is a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and the author of the book First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. You can find links to the book and more in today's show notes, including a link to our Patreon page. If you support Curiosity Daily on Patreon, then you can download and listen to our full uncut conversation with Stephanie Moore. As always, you can find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. And we hope you enjoyed our Fruit Fly Friday miniseries. Today's episode is paid for by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't. Ever. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be. And they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you? Well, better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop, even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. Most people know that a sting from a hornet is worse than a sting from a honeybee. But in terms of getting stung by bugs, that's about it. Now imagine you're an entomologist. You study bugs, and sometimes you get stung. In fact, for entomologists, stings are pretty much a part of life, an occupational hazard, if you will. How are you supposed to know how much a sting might hurt? Well, if you're entomologist Justin Schmidt, 
you create the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. It's a scale that rates the pain of 78 different stinging species. Sounds great, right? Well, there's only one problem. In order to actually create that pain index, he had to actually get stung by all of those species. Every sting on his scale happened within the scope of his work, as in they were side effects, not the main goal. But still, that's a lot of stings. Of course, subjective pain ratings are by definition less than scientific. And the single subject, his cornucopia of sting locations, and small sample size makes Schmidt's ratings hard to extrapolate to what you or I might experience. But the index serves a purpose, if only to show that sting pain and venom toxicity aren't always related. His scale goes from zero to four. For a baseline, he used the pain of a honeybee sting and rated it a two. Most people have experience with that pain, so they have something to compare the others to. His ratings are useful, but it's his sommelier-like descriptions that keep you coming back. Here are just a few of his descriptions. A water-walking wasp is a one. Quote, clever but trivial? A little like magic in that you cannot quite figure out the difference between pain and illusion, end quote. A paper wasp is a 1.5, burning, throbbing, and lonely. A single drop of superheated frying oil landed on your arm. A pepsis wasp is a four, blinding, fierce, shockingly electric. A running hairdryer has been dropped into your bubble bath. A bullet ant is a four plus, pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. You can read more of his descriptions in our full write-up on this, which you'll find on curiosity.com and on our free Curiosity app for Android and iOS. In the meantime, I think I'll just stick with fruit flies, thanks. That's all for today, but you can keep learning all weekend on curiosity.com. This weekend, you'll learn about the ages when you're best at everything, according to research, whether boys and girls are actually born with different spatial reasoning skills, why our closest star may have a habitable planet, what it means that moviegoers blink at the same time, and more. If there's something else you're curious about, then send us your question. You can find our contact info and links to everything we do on our podcast website, curiositydaily.com. Come hang out with us again Sunday on the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Have a great weekend. And stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. 